Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, let me invite you to open up to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 7, uh, is where we'll be this morning. Um, as you're turning there, uh, let me just say, uh, I know that when you, some of you came in today uh, and you saw uh, our beloved Building A uh, and B gone now, but uh, for some people today that elicited a uh, sort of a, a visceral emotional response to seeing those buildings the way they are. And um, I just want to say this to you uh, pastorally, and uh, we have a lot of great memories historically in those buildings over the years. People were married over there, buried over there, uh, Sunday school classes, uh, lots of great memories over there. But I want to remind you of, of this truth this morning. If you find yourself uh, struggling with it uh, and just wanting to acknowledge it, let me just say this. The buildings are not what give us the memories. It's the people that were inside the buildings making the memories with us that make the buildings special. But you still have your memories. And for many of us, we still have those relationships with those people that we get to build new memories. One of the things that I've tried to say over the past couple of years that, uh, that I've been here and our elders are trying to amplify and staff is that we are committed to having more in common with our future and where we're going and who we're becoming rather than just our past. Our past matters, and it's significant. But to move forward as a church, part of that for us is letting go of some of those buildings and to be able to move forward. And so I, I want you to just hear that from me pastorally, and I get it, and I know for some of you it's hard. Uh, I know for some of you there is no sentimentality to those buildings whatsoever, and it's, it's just another building. And we're, we're all on these different spectrums. And, uh, but I want you to pray, especially for uh, some of our senior adults who are processing this stuff, rightfully so, aggrieved uh, by it in, in so many ways, uh, and have a sense of sadness over it, but to remind us of the gospel truth that we're moving forward together to build something better than what it was and what it could be. Well, if you have found uh, your place in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 7, this is probably one of the most misunderstood and even difficult passages in the New Testament. I told Haley the other day that if I was going to preach a series on the difficult sayings of Jesus, this would have been one that I would have picked immediately. Often because it's so fraught with misunderstanding about the role of judgment and in particular the role that Christians play in demonstrating judgment or lack of judgment. We live in a culture, in a day and age, in which the mantra is just live and, and, and let live. Like you do your thing and, and I'll do my thing. And as long as your thing doesn't interfere with my thing, then whatever it is that you want to do is, is fine. We live in a, a day and age of, of moral relativism, meaning that whatever works for you, morally speaking, that, that's fine. Again, as long as it doesn't impact me and my family or my system or my circle, then that's completely okay. We live in a day of, of moral outrage, yet at the same time, this moral outrage that we see displayed oftentimes in culture often says in the same very breath, who are you to tell me what is right? I'm morally outraged on one hand, but yet at the same time, as long as your outrage is not vain towards me, who are you to tell me what truth is and who are you to tell me what's right and what's wrong, what's black and what's white? Who are you? And so Jesus makes a transition in the sermon and he begins to talk about the role of judgment in the life of a believer. In particular to a group of, of Jewish audience who gathered to hear him. And Jesus begins in chapter 7 verse 1 and he says this, Judge not that you be not judged. 
For with judgment you pronounce you will be judged, and the measure you use it will be measured to you. So a couple of things just in the very beginning. Jesus says emphatically, the level to which you judge other people in your harshness, in your spirit, in your words, and in your actions, you're going to be judged according to the measure in which you delve it out. Think about that for a moment. Think about the moments in your life where perhaps you practice a, a harsh tone or, or a spirit of judgment on top of someone. And what Jesus is saying in that moment is that you will be judged according to the level in which you issued the judgment. He goes on in verse 3 and he says, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own? How do you notice the, the flaw in someone else, but you fail to notice the flaw within your own self? And so one of the first principles that we want to gather from this text this morning, specifically as it relates to judgment and issuing judgment on someone else, is that we have a fatal tendency to exaggerate the faults in others while minimizing the faults within ourselves. It is easy for us to look at someone else's life and to point out where they got it wrong, why they have it wrong, and what they need to do to change it. And we have a, an incredible ability on an expert level of professionalism where we can point out all the things wrong with our spouses or with our kids or our coworkers or our bosses or our leaders, all the while minimizing the fault that is within us. On Wednesday nights, there's a group of us that gather for what we call our re-engage, the marriage enrichment ministry. And one of the first things that we do the very first week is we talk about what it means to stay inside your circle when talking. And so in marriage counseling and couple counseling, one of the things that happens is one spouse will begin to point out the faults in the other spouse. And so the saying that we use on Wednesday nights is, hey, stay in your circle. Meaning that if you're going to critique, what you have to critique is everybody that stands in your imaginary circle right there. And that you can't critique your spouse in that way, but you must find where you are at fault. And we do this in marriages and in relationships, with coworkers, and in every gamut of relationships that we have. We can point out the faults in others, but we can minimize the faults within ourselves. To say it another way, as Jesus speaks against and towards judgmental people, what he's saying is judgmental people fail to take into account their own sinfulness. Judgmental people that go around with a spirit of judgment or even a spirit of criticism, more often than not are people overwhelmingly that fail to take into account their own sinfulness and their own failures. And they don't come to terms with that. And so what Jesus is doing in this moment, he's saying, listen, uh, you have this thing that's in your eye, and, and all the while you're pointing out this, this minor thing in someone else's, and it's just a, a little bitty thing, and yet you have this log that is coming out of your eye. In other words, what Jesus is saying in this moment is do not be more concerned about someone else's sin than you are your own. The first person that I start with in judgment is myself. And I make sure that, that I'm aware of, of my deficiencies. I'm aware of my sinfulness. And listen, this isn't beating yourself up and, and walking in condemnation. It's just an awareness emotionally and spiritually and even physically of where I fail. 
Understanding where my faults are, my, my blind spots, and the things that I don't see, it's an awareness that exists in that moment. Understanding that, that I'm not going to be more concerned with the, the sin in, in their life or in your life more than I am than the sin within my own life, deep within my heart. Jesus goes on and, and he says, verse 4, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own. And then he uses this infamous word that Jesus is fond of using at times when he's rebuking people and moving them along. He says, you hypocrite. Take the log out of your own eye. And then, notice this, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brothers. So often when we use the phrase, don't judge me, who are you to judge? It's often pushed on us from a cultural uh, perspective that, that you're not in a better place to judge. And what Jesus is saying is that there are certainly places where we are called to judge. But what Jesus is doing in this moment is he's saying, you better be extremely self-reflective. You better be extremely aware of your own habits and your own patterns and your own sin in your life before you dare even approach to be able to help a brother or sister in Christ out. Then and only then, then you go to them. When you're prayed up and confessed up and you're right with God, trusting in God, then and only then can you help your brother's I. But see, judgmental people oftentimes are not just the people that go around casting judgment on others. Sometimes some of the most judgmental people that make judgments that no one ever knows are when and what happens when we write other people off as hopeless. You see, judgmental people can be vocal in their criticism and vocal in their judgment, but a passive way of casting judgment on someone is just simply saying, I don't care enough about you to say anything in your life if I see something or I see you at fault or I see something wrong or a pattern that's going to ultimately lead to destruction. I make a judgment on you. I don't say the judgment, but the judgments imply meaning I don't care enough about you that I'm going to let you destroy your, your life or your family or your, or your career or I'm going to let this pattern of sin get in the way where it hinders your relationship with God. Judgmental people write others off as hopeless, but judgmental people also will remove people from their lives that they disagree with. And we do this on a variety of spectrums. We can do it doctrinally, uh, our beliefs about God and differing beliefs about certain things that are second or even third tier level issues that are not the major core fundamentals of the faith. And if you don't agree with me on every single thing that I say or believe, then I'm going to write you off. Morally speaking, I'm going to make my own moral judgments, especially in places where Scripture might not be as, as precise or as clear as I would like for it to be, but it gives me liberty to walk. But if you don't agree with me fundamentally, then I will remove you from my life. We do this every four years at a minimum. When political seasons come up and election cycles come up, that you didn't vote for my guy or believe in my guy, therefore you must be the enemy. Therefore, I'm going to distance myself from you in my life, and therefore we can't be friends because we don't agree. Friend, I want to tell you this this morning. 
It's really hard to be an agent of reconciliation. It's really hard to be sent on mission by God, understanding that the only people that I will develop intentional friendships with and relationships with, if and only if, they agree with everything that I already agree with. It's really hard to to live on mission and to see people far from God come to know Christ if I am constantly distancing myself or removing people from my life that I disagree with. It's really hard to be on mission because the thing is is that we begin to interpret our mission and our relationships through the, the lens, not of the Bible, but just rather of convenience. And I believe that, that God in his heart, listen to me, he wants to save all people, black and white, yellow and purple. He wants to save Republicans and Democrats and Libertarians. He wants to save those uh, that, that have no political leanings. And one of the ways that we live on mission is we develop those relationships with people to whom we disagree with. And not cast judgment, but seek understanding. Not seek to, to be heard, but rather to seek to, to listen and to be intentional with the gospel as God sends us out. How can you take the log out of your own eye, take it out, remove it, be self-reflective before you then go to your brother? The gospel teaches us something profound in this moment. It teaches us that we must love the person more than we love the position or the issue. We love the person made in his image, her in his image. If I'm going to be on mission with God, it means that I love the person more than the thing that perceives and attempts to divide us. Jesus goes on in verse 6 and he says, he makes a, a peculiar statement. He says, therefore do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them under their feet, underfoot, and turn to attack you. This is sort of a weird statement for Jesus to sort of cap off this section. Why would he go from this period of self-examination and reflection before you go and, and lovingly confront, pastorally confront, and in this moment, all of a sudden, he shifts the gear and he begins to talk about dogs and pigs. Well, we know a couple of things about this language and this imagery that exists. There were places elsewhere in the New Testament where the Gentiles were referred to as dogs. And it was meant to be a derogative term towards them. And what they were saying in that moment, the Gentiles were dogs. The Jews didn't associate with the Gentiles. At the same time, the Jews had some dietary restrictions, if you will, where pork or pigs were deemed unclean animals. They were filthy animals, rolling around in the dirt, eating anything that would come before them. And so if you were to cast pearls in a pen full of pigs, most likely the pig is not going to stop and say, well, look how lovely and beautiful these pearls are. Most likely the pig is going to stick his nose into those pearls, and he's probably going to end up eating the pearl or losing it in the mud. A dog. Unable to determine what is holy and unholy. We, we have this very domesticated view of animals. But one of the reasons why the Gentiles were, were called dogs, if you've ever been to a third world country, you know that many of them view animals completely different than we do. And dogs are, are scavengers that sort of roam on the, sea, on, the, on the street. They don't have names like Fifi and are toy poodles that sleep in your bed at night. They scavenge. 
And they're dirty and they're unclean. And I remember the first time I went to Africa and I loved dogs. And we were out in the middle of this, basically, it looked like a big garbage pile. And there were dogs roaming around everywhere. And me doing what a dog lover does, I'm like, come here, I want to pet this dog. And the guy that I was with said, don't touch the dog. He's disease ridden and unclean. Stay away from the dog. And what Jesus is saying in this moment When he says, don't give dogs what is holy, do not throw your pearls before the the pigs, more explicitly what he's saying, and and there are a variety of interpretations to this, but I would lean into the camp of a guy, reformer by the name of John Calvin, who says this, that the dogs and pigs are representative of those who by clear evidence, as clear as day, and have been persistent in time, they have hardened their hearts towards the things of God towards the things of his kingdom. And then Calvin says that they appear to be incurable. Appear. One scholar turns around and he says this about verse 6. He said the teaching of Jesus in this moment is what we would call an exceptional situation. That this isn't the norm in how Christians are to behave around lost people. Our normal obligation and duty before the Lord is always to be patient with others. Always to come alongside and attempt to to persevere with them. To be as patient with them as God is as patient with us. I love how Psalm 103 captures this idea of the Lord being patient with his people. Listen to this. The psalmist says the Lord is merciful and he is gracious. He is slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. He, God, does not deal with us according to our sins, nor does he repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. He's slow to anger, rich in love. He is full of of compassion towards his children. Jesus makes that statement in 6, and then this wild transition takes place. Almost seemingly, verses 7 through 12 seem not to connect at all and to be disjointed from the first couple of verses. But if you understand verses 1 through 6, as him trying to get us to recognize our need to be right with God, our need for God to be involved in the midst of our relationships, in the midst of our confrontations, then verse 7 makes all the sense in the world because what he's doing in this moment is he is sort of putting the meat on the bones and showing us how to do that. And look in verse 7, he says this, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives, and the one who seeks, finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Ask, seek, and knock. In the Greek, he puts these in what's known as the present imperative, and and all you need to know why that's significant in this moment is because what he's doing is he's trying to emphasize the persistence the persistent need of our prayers to constantly be asking and seeking and knocking and coming before the Lord. Now, lest you think that that means, that promise that Jesus says means that you can ask for anything, 
You can knock and, and the door will always be open. You can seek and you will always find whatever your request is. Let me give us a word of caution real quick. The only way to guarantee that every time I ask and seek and knock, God hears me and answers me and responds is when I pray and when I ask and when I seek and when I knock according to his will. When I ask for scripture, when I pray scripture, when I seek scripture, when I knock on the door of scripture, the only way to solidify the fact that God will always answer every single one of our prayers is to be so full of the Holy Spirit that when I pray, I pray the words of God that God has already spoken back to him because I know that God will never forsake himself. He will never forsake his word. And so therefore we ask and we seek and we will find and we knock. And then listen to this beautiful reminder that Jesus gives about our Heavenly Father that Jeffrey was talking about earlier. Which one of you, if his sons ask him for bread, will give him a stone? None of us. Or if he asks for a fish, he'll give him a serpent? None of us. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, catch this, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? How much more? How good is he? Jesus says he's the greatest. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. If verse 6 was the exception to the rule with the dogs and the pigs, then verse 12 is the rule. If we minimally and rare occasions practice verse 6, verse 12 ought to be the thing that is most normal in our life. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. Think about what our city would look like if we practice this little golden rule that we learned all the way back in kindergarten, which wasn't a rule in kindergarten. It's scripture and it's the word of God and Jesus has spoken it. Imagine what our, our church would look like or our community groups would look like. Imagine what this fellowship and what the city and what the world would look like if we did to others what we wish them to do unto us. It means there would never be any mean-spiritedness. There would never be an unkind word spoken. There'd be a spirit of perpetual generosity and kindness. No pugnacious, combative attitudes on Twitter and Facebook and social media. No passive aggressiveness that, that would exist in any form. Always understanding. Never any cruelty. Always kind. Always love. Always compassion. If we treated each other the way that we ourselves wanted to be treated, Jesus says, all of the law, Genesis through all the prophets and all the way is summarized in that verse right there. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Now before I turn you loose in this sermon, and if you are fired up and ready to go judge someone or to do some judging, I want to give you just a couple of things just real quick that you'd be mindful of to, to use. And, and many of these things are things that I've learned from experience and I've learned from others. 
That if you feel like there's a, a t- the timing is right and, and, and the fullness of the sin is there and you need to go help get the speck out of your brother's eye, here's a couple of things that you ought to be mindful of. Number one is this. Before you go, you better pray long and hard. And you seek the Lord. And you remember that it's only the Holy Spirit that can change someone. Not your words, not your presence, not what you do, but it is the Spirit of God that has the ability to change. You and I cannot change someone. So we pray. Number two, we have to be sensitive at times to what people can handle. Is the moment right? And and how I, I say something, it matters as much as what I say. And my tone and my inflection, am I looking at them in the eye? Have they just come off a a really difficult thing? And and is the timing just not quite there? We must be sensitive to what people can handle at one time. Number three, as already stated, we value the person over the position. The goal is to win the brother or sister over. Not to kick them in the teeth. Not to punch them in the stomach. Not to push them down. The goal is to bring them up and to help move them along. Be flexible as you approach them and understand and have an awareness of the timing. Be patient with the pace of God in someone else's life. Some of you, the Spirit of God has got your wheels turning at 70 and, and 75 miles an hour. Some of you, you're on a a country road somewhere and you're just driving about 40, but you're cruising along and you're making it. Some of you are in the parking lot and you're just trying to get a feel for it and you're only going about five miles an hour. And sometimes when somebody whose wheels are going 75 miles an hour and you try to go and approach someone whose wheels are only turning at five miles an hour, devastation occurs. Because sometimes the person that you're going to talk to is not even moving forward, but they've got their car in reverse, and they don't know how to get it back into drive. And so we have to understand and have an awareness in those moments to be patient with the pace of God. And lastly, let me say this to you. It's okay, in some cases, to back out of a destructive relationship. If you're experiencing abuse in some way, physically or or even emotionally or being manipulated in some way, spiritually being abused, it is okay to remove yourself from that relationship and just go and let them be a dog and a pig and do their thing, but to get out. There's a scripture elsewhere where Jesus, the word of God says this, that mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I believe that that is the word that God wants us to hear today. Our city and and our world is, is so hypercritical in so many different ways. The church as a whole is so angry and so judgmental. And when we say mercy triumphs over judgment, we're not saying that we accept or condone behavior that Scripture speaks against. But what it means is is that we are going to always attempt to be merciful and gracious in our interactions as we bring people along and we see them come to faith in Christ, number one, but also we see them mature and to become like Jesus. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Would you pray with me? Father, uh, we, uh, we thank you for that truth that Jesus gives. 
And we're grateful that, Father, we, we have been judged in our sin. But, Father, in your goodness and in your kindness, you have redeemed us from that sin. And today, for those of us that are in Christ, we do not stand in judgment. But we stand in the freedom that you give and the liberty that you have given us. And so, Father, we ask that you would help us remember that truth this morning and this week. And, Father, as we come to this time where we partake of your table, we pray, Father, that your spirit would convict us and show us where maybe we're not living the way that we need to live. And so, Father, would you help us now come in a worthy manner to come before you in your presence. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.